This is The Passion Economy, the show where we talk to regular people who have figured out how to thrive in our new, often terrifying economy. I'm Adam Davidson, and on today's episode, a love story, how an unexpected bond, a special connection, a terrific love, helped Sean Buckley start an incredibly disruptive business that has been far more successful than he or anyone else ever thought it could be. I never had a dog and never understood the magic of a dog until I was in my late 30s. But once Sean fell in love with his first dog, he learned something that people have known for thousands of years. That connection between man and beast can be deeper and unlike any other. Uh, By the way, we did a scientific survey of the Passion Economy's staff, and we are evenly divided. Cat people, dog people. I will admit, I'm one of the cat people. But still, I could see the love Sean has in his eyes for his now many dogs. And it didn't just change his life, it changed his professional trajectory. He started what he calls the world's first ever dog food kitchen. He calls it Just Food for Dogs. And it's what it sounds like. There are kitchens across the country using just regular, good quality, human-grade food to make meals for dogs. One of the things I loved about talking with Sean is Just Food for Dogs is this amazing lesson and something we haven't really dug into on this show yet, and it's this. Most of the businesses we've talked with so far are geared towards a fairly narrow niche, a niche big enough to support a multi-million dollar successful company, but not a niche so big that large multinational corporations are interested. That's not the case with Just Food for Dogs. There are a lot of people in the world who are really into their pets. Pet food and dog food is a multi-billion dollar global industry. And Sean is taking his passion and the passion that dog lovers all around the country and one day the world feel and trying to compete with some of the world's biggest companies. As always, we'll bring you Sean's story in three parts. First is the background. We often find that learning about our guests' past helps us understand what shaped their passions, how they got to their current business. Second, we'll learn about that business, the passion economy business we're interested, how it started, how it works. And then towards the end, in the third section, we will dig into that story and look for lessons we can use in our own lives and businesses, even if we're not dog people, even if we're not in a food business at all. So let's get started with Sean Buckley's background. Sean is from Orange County, California. He grew up in a working-class family. My father was a bill poster. You know, the guys in the old days that would go up the ladders and put up billboards. Oh, really? Yeah. And, not uh, paint them, but just not do paint the them, glue but and, yeah, yeah, the glue and the paper and all that. Yeah, that's what he did. He did that his whole life, actually. Wow. So yeah. blue collar. Yeah, yeah. And my mom was a grocery checker. Did you want to be a bill poster when you were a kid? No, I specifically did not want to be a bill poster. <laughs> when I mean, it, I can imagine why not. I never wanted to be a bill poster, <laughs> but why not specifically? Yeah, uh, because it seemed like really hard work. <laughs> and it didn't, honestly, I don't want this to sound, you know, the wrong way, but it 
didn't seem like it would be that gratifying. I think my dad was a really hardworking guy. You know, he was a great guy. And uh, he worked hard his whole life, you know. But you got to get up at 4.30 in the morning and you got to, you know, it's cold, it's raining, whatever. You got to do the job. I don't know. I just, it didn't seem satisfying to me or fulfilling. Now, what Sean found fulfilling was business. He liked to puzzle out how to make a business run better, how to make deals. As he put it, when I was young, it was about starting a business because I wanted to be a leader and I wanted to make money. And he started pursuing that passion as an entrepreneur with a friend of his when he was really young, just out of school. I was part owner of a small bicycle accessory manufacturer, and I'm putting manufacturer in air quotes here. You know, we had a little 2,000 square foot space in Orange County, and we made bicycle pieces and parts, if you will. We didn't definitely didn't make whole bicycles. Oh, sorry. If you thought I meant college when I said just out of school. Literally, it was the summer out of high school for both of us. Wow. And we got very popular very fast, not just in California, but around the country. And so we were selling directly to bicycle shops. You know, in those days, I don't know what the business is like today. There was around 5,500 bicycle shops, independent bike shops around the country. And when was this? Oh, gosh, this was uh, early 80s. Early 80s. Yeah. Wow. So, I mean, most 18-year-olds don't start a manufacturing business. So were you like a major biker? Is that what got you into this? No. No. I was not into cycling. Wow. So biking, it was just your friend had this idea. Sure, I'll try that. Yeah. And so I got in and I was actually quite good at it. And, and if he had uh, come to you and said, hey, I want to make ball bearings or I want to make canoes or whatever. You probably would have ended up in the canoe business. <laughs> right. You know? So the lesson Sean learned there is he didn't really care what the business was. He just liked business. He liked figuring out how to make a business successful. And it worked. It was such a success that after about a year and a half, they were bought by a more established company. I really was fortunate there. And I uh, I got to meet my first mentor, although I didn't know he was a mentor and he never would have, you know, described himself as a mentor. Uh, he made a big difference for me in the world of business. And that company grew to be very large. We went public. You know, it was one of the largest bicycle companies in the country. Wow. At What's that it time. called? It was called GT Bicycles. Talk to me about this mentor, because it sounds like that was your college, the learning from that person. There's no question. His yeah. name was Richard Long. When I went to work for Richard, I might have been 20, 19 or 20 at that time. And he just had the gut for it. He was a true entrepreneur. And uh, he could make things work when they should not have worked wasn't an inventor. He wasn't a product guy. He was a sales guy and a deal maker. He allowed me to do things that companies would not normally allow a 20-year-old to do, like open up international distribution accounts. And he taught me how to do that. Wow. The idea of this show, it's called The Passion Economy, is mm-hmm. that the 20th century economy was very good at scale, at developing massive distribution channels, but it was not very good for people to find their passion, you know? And I feel like your dad is a classic 20th century job. Mm -hmm. It probably, the version of him 100 years earlier was a subsistence farmer who was struggling, and the 20th century gave him this job that allowed him to raise his family and have a much nicer house and food, but not enormous wealth, but he's not even thinking that his passion will be in his job. And then you, in your early stages, were similarly, you were kind of the appropriate next step. You were going to 
be an owner of capital. You were going to be a businessman. But it wasn't, it sounds like it didn't even occur to you in those, in the 80s, like, but what do I love? It was, I'm going to do business. I'm going to be good at business. And that's all, all that I can be. And then now, it seems, the economy is structured in such a way that people really can follow their passion. Was it, when you look back at that time, I mean, it sounds like you were learning a ton. You were it, you were getting a lot of responsibility. So it sounds like it was satisfying, even if it wasn't, you didn't particularly care about the product. No, it was incredibly satisfying. I absolutely loved what I did. But it, to your earlier point, it could have been canoes. Or because, ball bearings or whatever. Yeah, yeah, because what I loved was that we had a team, we had objectives, we met the objectives. I was responsible for a variety of things at the company, including all of the advertising and the branding. And for a good while, that passion for just running a business, any kind of business, that was enough for Sean. He left the bike company as a grizzled veteran of 24 years old and started an advertising company. No one told me that if you didn't go to school for advertising and public relations and or you've never worked for an advertising and public relations agency, it's not something you go do. So I did it. And the absence of that knowledge base, I believe, helped me because I don't think I ever would have done it otherwise. And the agency business was very successful. He sold that business, and then he bought a British baby stroller company called Silver Cross. They made these kind of old-fashioned-looking prams, I guess you call them. He eventually sold that as well, and that's what he cared about. Buying businesses, building businesses, selling businesses. I'm sure there are people in the world who are deeply passionate about old-fashioned baby strollers. Sean was definitely not one of them. The only thing that I've ever really done as a business that I have a passion for other than doing business is what I'm doing now. So what is Sean doing now? That's after the break. After years of starting businesses, buying businesses, and selling businesses, Sean Buckley finally built a business that really meant something to him, just food for dogs. It all started with Simon, a very special dog. Simon changed my life. He was, he, you know, people talk all the time about how dogs love us unconditionally, but I think there's really something to the flip side of that, which is, as humans, there's such risk in us giving the love. And I think that one of the things that dogs do is they allow us to love them and without risk. What did Simon look like? He was a black, probably pointer lab mix, not 100% sure whenever they're, you know, a rescue, but he was about 55 pounds and he had white spots on his chest and his paws. And he just loved to chase the ball, and he loved to snuggle. And if you're laying down on the couch, he'll come over and just lay on top of you. And he's just a—he was an amazing dog. Sean sold his last business, that baby stroller company, and he decided to take some time off. This guy who had spent so much of his life just working hard day and night to build businesses was suddenly without anything to do. So what he did is hang out with Simon. And then one day he noticed something that caught his eye. I was feeding a popular brand of kibble 
And Simon was eating the lamb and rice. And this is a true story. They ran out of the lamb and rice, which I'll never forget was the purple bag. And I decided, well, you know, they're out of it. I'll get the chicken. So, you know, I got the green bag. <laughs> and so I noticed it was the same price. I didn't really care. I just noticed, like, if you were to go to the butcher and buy lamb and buy chicken, you know, they're not going to be the same price. And I think to your earlier question, what did you do with all your time? I kind of got bored and started looking into it. And that's how I sort of accidentally discovered what's allowed to be in pet food. And it ranges from poultry feces, as long as we dehydrate it to a moisture content, not in excess of 15%. I'm not talking about the occasional, you know, chicken poo. I'm talking about the harvesting of chicken feces and intentional inclusion into the food, as long as you dehydrate it and treat it the way that it gives you in the AFCO book. What's the AFCO book? AFCO book is the Association of American Feed Control Officials, which, by the way, sounds very official, but it's a private company. It's run by our industry. And so it's a self-regulation. Yeah. yeah. It looks very much like an agency of the federal government or something. Somebody once told me it has as much federal in it as Federal Express. I thought that was a good way of putting it. I'm always fascinated by pricing. I feel like people don't pay enough attention to pricing. So that's the kind of thing that I could see myself getting obsessed with. How come chicken and lamb are equivalent prices? There's something going on here. But how does that then become a business? Yeah, so the pricing has different components. So the first thing you notice is, why is the chicken the same as the lamb? And then you notice, why is a 30-pound bag, you know, I'm making this up, $30 or something, you know? Lamb doesn't cost a dollar a pound. Yeah, how is this possible? And you start to come to the conclusion that, you know, there's something not right here. And then you start to look into it. So you figure out, this is what I did, figured out that who's in charge of this? Well, it's AFCO. And then you learn, oh, AFCO's private. It's not, you know, a part of the government in any way, shape, or form. And then you want to get an AFCO guidebook. You want to look at everything. Wow. You think most nonprofits just post on their website what's available, and you can get it and download it. Not AFCO. They make it as hard as they can make it. To this day, as we sit here today, you can't get the AFCO guidebooks online. They're $400. You have to wait months to get it. If you're the average consumer that cares about your dog and you want to know what's allowed to go in your dog's food, according to AFCO, it's really quite hard to find out. But I found out. And when I did, I said, I'm not feeding my dogs this stuff. And I began making their food the wrong way because <laughs> I didn't know what I was doing. <laughs> what did you do at first? Well, I just chopped up regular real food and gave them that. I didn't realize. I mean, I think maybe my gut was that they have a different nutritional profile, obviously, than we do. But I didn't have any idea what that would be. And just to play devil's advocate, is maybe chicken poop is really good. Right, yeah. right. exactly. So that's a great question because I love my dogs. And if the best thing to give them is empty peanut shells— Great. Are they getting empty peanut shells? Well, my dogs aren't, yeah. but, but empty peanut shells and empty almond shells are, in fact, allowed to go into pet food. I mean, you're making me think that there's, there are all these industrialized food manufacturers, yeah. and it's something I've read a lot about, and, and converting waste into some profitable use, even if it's an extremely low-value profitable use, is a lot better than having to pay cartage fees and, and yep. landfill fees or whatever. So it, you're making me imagine these are 
that the pet food industry is like an adjunct to the human food industry, a way to handle the waste. It's exactly Just what like it hot is. dogs. And, yeah, it's exactly what it is. Yeah. So you would see that the second largest pet food company in the United States is M&M Mars. Wait, really? Yeah. The first is Nestle. Really? Yeah. Uh, but the last time I checked, the third is Colgate-Palmolive. They own Science Diet, Hills, et cetera. So if you're M&M Mars, you have a lot of excess empty peanut shells and empty almond shells. So at first, Sean was really upset just about Simon, and Simon had to eat all this crap. And then slowly, Sean's business brain started to wake up, and he thought, I bet there's a business opportunity here. The business of pet care has changed pretty dramatically in the past 20 years. I'm not an expert in the other areas of the pet business, but I have eyes and I know how to read. And so you can see things like doggy daycare and dog walkers and board-certified specialists in the veterinary community that only do oncology, dermatology, internal medicine. They didn't have this stuff, you know, back in the day. A guy I grew up with is one of the world's leading animal dentists. Yeah, and 25 years ago, you would not have had any vets that only did dental. So we expect more and want more for our pets than we did some years ago. The one thing that hasn't kept up is food. We still primarily feed our dogs a little brown pellet. The history here is so interesting. I can't think of any product in the world that is such a perfect example of the quest for efficiency in the 20th century, the quest to just mass produce something at huge scale and low, low, low costs without worrying too much about its quality or the passionate interest of its consumers. What happened was uh, we were canning dog food, and along came uh, World War II, and we had metal rationing. And if you didn't need to put something in a can, then you didn't put it in a can because we had the middle rationing. So Purina invented a machine called an extruder, which could take slurry, and the extruder makes what we're referring to as kibble. Gotcha. And that so it way- dries it out. It extrudes a wet paste that dries out. And the problem there, I'm assuming, is that canning is a great way to preserve food. And if you can't can, you need to preserve the food for a long time because the supply chain and distribution chain for Animal food is probably not a cold supply chain like milk or whatever. And, and you wouldn't want it to be. I would want it to be. I mean, back then, yeah, yeah they wouldn't no, no, have No, but if your focus is entirely on profits, you are concerned with the weight of the food because sometimes in really, really super cheap kibble, the freight costs more than the kibble. Wow, really? So think about that for a second. Wow. Yeah. So you want to have it all the moisture taken out. So there's no natural moisture content now. Okay, for your your pets, which is why a lot of experts believe that we see so much renal disease in cats, especially, but also in dogs. So you want no moisture because it also probably helps with bacteria, but also it's just cheaper to ship. Yeah, you need something that can, here's what you need. You need meat in a bag for a year. One of the industry standards is a product called ethoxyquin. It's made by Monsanto. It's not allowed to be in any human food. It's a known carcinogen. And the theory is, yes, this might give your dog cancer, but it would take too many years to give them cancer. They'd be dead with their natural life anyway, which is factually incorrect. We believe factually incorrect. 
So what do we know about what dogs should be eating? Well, you know, I'm not a veterinarian, but we have 10 of them on our staff. And there is a certain level of, you know, vitamins and minerals in various amounts that are sometimes quite different per pound, say, than a human. And then they should eat bioavailable protein and fruits and vegetables just like us. So at first, this was sort of uh, just something you were doing because you loved your dogs. And yeah. to go to a fresh food for dogs business, I mean, that— It's a leap. So yeah. what we did was we started the world's first dog kitchen in Newport Beach, California, where I was living, really as an experiment, as a—I don't even call it a business launch as much as I call it a million-dollar business research because wow. we took a shoe store— on Pacific Coast Highway and turn it into a kitchen from scratch. And I'll never forget when our architect, John Califf, who now is full-time architect at our company, has been for years now, we walked in to the city, we rolled everything out, and the guy looked at it and said, okay, you got a cafe. Oh, no, you got a catering kitchen. What is this? There was no dining room. The kitchen was in the front. It was on PCH in Newport Beach, so it was not going to be a a catering kitchen, nobody spends that kind of rent for that. He had no idea what he was looking at. It's like, what What am I buying if I, is it? It's a package of food, and they come in different sizes. And it's frozen or it's fresh. So you can walk into the kitchen and buy what they're making today, or you can get it frozen. And um, we've even, in the early days, we had a lot of complaints. It's so loud in here, I can't even hear the consultant talk to me. It's like, you know what? It isn't about that. It's about we're making food. We're making it right here. And the consultant, so the, the salesperson, is because you do have to educate consumers. They Absolutely. really have to understand the value proposition and the health issues. Yeah. Our consultants are highly trained by, you know, our chief medical officer who is a professor in clinical canine nutrition. So he's not only a vet, he's a professional educator. There's a big difference there. So they all go through a deep dive in training we're not the kind of place where you come in and they say, oh, the fish are on aisle six and the cats are on aisle 12. It's not like that at all. These people are true nutrition consultants that can walk you through a process. All right. So you do the development exercise and are you immediately going to consumers? Are you selling it? Yes. So I built the kitchen to do the equivalent in pounds of food that would equate to about $150,000 a month which is a lot. You know, I figured, listen, if we run into a problem, we hit the ceiling, we've got a great problem. We're doing $150,000 a month in dog food out the front door, direct to consumer. Well, we hit it, and we hit it pretty fast in less than a year, and we needed to build a second location. So we built a second location in West Hollywood that was more than double the size of the first location. And help me understand how it works. So there's a physical kitchen in a prominent Location, so expensive real estate. You're yes. not in some warehouse somewhere. No. And why is that? Because that's our advertising. And talk to me about the pantries. What are the pantries? Yeah, so a pantry, we have kitchens and pantries. We have 120, we just opened our 124th location. Nine of those are kitchens, the rest are pantries. And it's kind of like a hub and spoke model. So you've got a kitchen surrounded by a whole bunch of pantries that have freezers and refrigerators and a consultant, but no actual kitchen. So it only takes up about 250 square feet, relatively small space, 
the metrics, the financial metrics in those in that space are literally world class. We're inside of vet hospitals. We're inside of Petco's, not all, but some. And we also have our own freestanding pantries. And do you own all of them, or is there a franchise model? Or? We own them all. Now, you need a different distribution channel. You need to educate consumers. You need to worry about perishability in a way that you don't with kibble. I mean, it's like if suddenly somebody decided we want furniture to be edible and right. perishable, it would. you couldn't just... Ikea would have to change a lot about how Ikea works. It's a fantastic question. It's a fantastic question. It goes to the exact areas that you're talking about. Let's say you're successful. So fortunately, we were successful. You end up in a place where you're buying freezers in hundreds of stores, and there's something called a push-forward in a freezer. And if you sell ice cream, they have that molded push-forward for you. And if you sell a TV dinner, they have that for you. But so, you that sell, it, so that the ice cream is pushed forward. Yeah, yeah exactly. So if you load a little like a, plastic, whether thing. it's a Stouffer's dinner or a Swanson dinner or a Trader Joe's dinner, they're all in the same size box. The graphics are different and the, maybe the cardboard is different, but it's the same size box because it's got to fit. So just one example of creating the world's first dog kitchen right. is how the hell do you display everything? Because... Nobody makes anything. You can't open up plastic molds to have your own push-forwards made. It goes from that to what kind of mixer are you using? What kind of cooking skillets are you using? There's nothing that's manufactured to make exactly what we make. And that's kind of a pretty good sign you're filling a hole in the market. More after the break. I love the idea that Sean is going up against these massive food companies. And you might imagine someone thinking, how can I compete? They have billions of dollars. They have huge R&D departments. They have distribution all over the world. But what he saw was that they were locked in to the old way of doing things. Their basic capital machinery, their basic way of functioning, their distribution channels, the size of their trucks, the size of their displays at supermarkets was all built around this clearly inferior, passion-free product. So the very fact that Sean was doing something so outside of the box that no one was prepared for his business to come in and rock the industry, that is what gave his passionate idea so much force. Sean told me this story about how he bumped into this guy, a higher up at a huge food distribution company. And he said to him, just in passing, You guys are already a $31 billion company. So, you know, you could either start acquiring other companies that do what you do, or it'd be really interesting if all of America woke up tomorrow and stopped buying cans and kibble and started making food from human-grade food because that's another $32 billion worth of business. Right. Any big food company that's targeting human beings could be in a position to gain. This was an exciting light bulb moment for me because I could see that Sean was doing something new. I, I've never seen people make fresh food in a kitchen for dogs. But I didn't understand just how big a disruption this was. He was transforming an entire industry or two industries, human-grade food and pet food. 
And it's working. He's growing crazily. He's now the number one purchaser of venison, you know, deer meat in the United States. Alaskan cod, he's purchasing about as much as Costco is. Costco is huge. He is expanding steadily, steadily into this human-grade food world, which tells you there is a huge business potential, far bigger than he's already reached. And my thinking really expanded around what Sean was building. Aside from the developing world, you know, Kellogg's is not going to suddenly find 20 million new mouths to feed. They're going to try and grab some market share from someone else, and it's trench warfare. And what you're saying is at the table where you're selling food, there's a there's someone under the table who's hungry right. and who's right now eating something pretty crappy. So what if that became yours? So, you know, it's interesting. So on this show, The Passion Economy, I'd say our typical guest would be someone who has an unusual passion and is able to find that group of people spread around the world who also share that unusual passion. So you clearly have this deep passion. This business is rooted in your passion, and that's palpable. But your passion is not an obscure passion. It's a ubiquitous passion. Well, I think it is a great way of putting it. And I'm fascinated by the the basis of the show. But my question for you, and maybe your past guests, and definitely your future guests, is What happens if you find out that your niche business isn't such a niche? Because that's us. Yeah, that's you. And honestly, my first thought is to be worried because there are two companies in America that make horse-drawn farm equipment for the Amish market. Caterpillar is not going to suddenly say, hey, we want to get in on the horse-drawn farm equipment. They're pretty safe. Great example. But with you, what would worry me is— Someone at Kraft or someone at Purina or someone wherever is going to wake up one day and say, hey, let's let's crush this guy. Let's get in on this. And, you know, here's $30 million. Let's, let's just own this guy. I mean, either actually buy you, I guess, which wouldn't be the worst thing in the world, or let's just— They'd need a lot more than $30 million. They'd need a lot more than— point. Yeah. So how are you safe? What is your—like, so for a lot of passion businesses, the competitive— protection is that it's such a niche that nobody would bother, no huge company would even bother to try and compete. It's the most, at least for me, currently the most fascinating part of the business. And I don't certainly don't have all the answers, but have thought through, you know, some of this. What's happening with us is that the public is positively parched, just parched. Veterinarians and the public starving for something that's not in a can and not in a bag. Because people are, you know, we have more dogs than we ever have. We're spending more money on them than we ever have, et cetera. There's no question about that. You know, the ASPCA does a pretty significant piece of research. And one of the questions is, is your dog a companion animal? Is your dog a pet? Is your dog a member of the family? Uh, Something like that. And I believe 2017 was the first year nationwide when the answer predominantly was member of the family. So to answer your question, how do you keep yourself safe? Luck, to some degree, you have to get to a certain point because before a certain point, you can be crushed. But after a certain point, 
it's a much more difficult, it's a much more even playing field, and you can be, as we are, vastly smaller, exponentially smaller than any of the giants. And the playing field is actually quite level because, you know, we have our own in-house counsel. We have our own general contractors. We have hundreds of employees now. We do research with major universities. So now they either missed the boat to crush us or they're going to have to come up with a new way to crush us because we're in a position to defend ourselves if we have to. So the other ways of defense, I'm just thinking, so one is intellectual property. Yeah. But you're letting everyone see your recipe. Like, yeah. I can just go to your store and figure out how much cauliflower, how much broccoli. All you have to do is walk in and ask for the recipe, and they'll give it to you. Oh, really? It's, <laughs> yeah. It's even worse than that for our lawyers. Okay. And better for you if you have a dog. Right. And we had to make that decision early on. Like, we said we started this company because— we love dogs. We want to make them live longer, healthier lives. Is that some marketing line? Or are we going to live it? The other thing you're doing is in the compliance space. You're, you're self-imposing a level of quality that's much higher than the federal norm or the state norms, right? That's Yeah. We wanted to be able to say that our food was proven healthy. You can't just say that on a label. You At least, I don't know what you can. You can't if you're us. Right. We're science-based. We're evidence-based. So we decided to do a feeding trial. And when we looked into what a feeding trial was, the AFCO feeding trial, it was a real eye-opener. This is actually how I met our, who is now our chief medical officer. He was a professor at Cal Poly Pomona's Animal Health Sciences Department. I contacted them and said, hey, we'd like to do a feeding trial. And they said, great, let's talk about it. And we did. And that, I'm assuming it's like a human randomly controlled trial where you feed dogs? Well, yes, some of that is accurate. So they started looking at two PhDs in animal nutrition. Dr. Chavez, the professor in clinical canine nutrition, were looking at the protocols from AFCO. And they were perplexed, you know, and they said, said, this is a really strange protocol because it requires for us to measure four blood parameters in only six dogs over a period of six months. And six dogs. That's a, as the statisticians say, that's a very low-powered survey. Like, so six dogs is literally statistically irrelevant. It's and that's not even the worst part. The worst part is they looked at it and they said, and it's so strange, Sean. These particular four blood panels wouldn't begin to show signs of degradation until way after six months. And I leaned back in my chair and I said, "Wow, they're doing it on purpose so they can pass every time." And I said, what's the right study? And they said, you know, a reasonable number of dogs would be more like 30. And we should do a CBC, a complete blood count, which is 24 blood parameters. And we should do it for a year so that we can really see. And I said, well, let's do that. So they jump into this crazy process, doing feeding trials with dogs. But not just any dogs. Dogs weren't locked up in some research facility. It turns out to be really difficult and really expensive to do feeding trials with, you know, free dogs who live in a home with people. People who might move and you have to follow wherever they go to continue to do the trial. They decided to do more blood tests to see more ways in which the food was affecting these dogs' bodies. And they wanted to do it for more than six months so that they could see the impact of a change in diet over time. But 
all of that expense was worth it. It paid off because the tests were a huge success with the help of a whole team of veterinarians and animal nutritionists. Sean's company developed a food for dogs that dramatically improved their blood panels. Their food was clinically shown to boost dogs' immune systems and stop a whole host of negative impacts from the dried kibble pellets. Another thing Just Food for Dogs does that sets them apart We also do custom formulations. We always have for dogs and cats. And in fact, we do custom formulations for, right now, at least one pig that I know of and two zoo animals, one in the L.A. Zoo and one in the San Diego Zoo. Wow. And how does that work, custom formulation? Well, you know, we do this the way, the way I describe it is uh, our custom formulation is kind of like, you know, the Toyota Grand Prix, you know? Toyota doesn't make Grand Prix cars so they can sell Grand Prix cars. They make Grand Prix cars so they can sell pickup trucks. It's their proof point that they really know their stuff. This is our proof point that we really know our stuff. We don't make any money on it. We do two or 300 of them a month. But the way it works, to answer your question, is any vet anywhere in the country can send our team of vets the blood panel or other data of a dog or a cat that has a certain disease for whom we don't currently make a prescription food. So we have a whole line of prescription food. So for example, if you had a dog with renal disease but was allergic to lamb, our renal support diet is based in lamb. So you'd have to make a have to make a change there. We've used in the past alligator, uh, ostrich, uh, all kinds of unique proteins for dogs with dermatological issues, stomach issues. They can be dogs that are in the hot or cats that are in the hospital or that are living at home but have very, very special needs. How much is the prescription stuff and the specialty stuff of your business? The, I mean, you've said the custom is a very small yes. aspect, but the prescription stuff is if that... If you add the prescription and the custom together, it's about 21%. Wow. It's a lot. It's a lot. One yeah. in five. It's a lot bigger than people think, and the depending on who you ask, the value of the prescription diet business in this country is anywhere from $1.3 to $1.6 billion a year. It's dominated by Colgate Palmolive and Mars. They have a brand called Royal Canin, and Colgate Palmolive, I'm pretty sure they still own it. They, they have theirs, it's called Hills. And these brands have been around for many, many decades. They're kibble and cans. They're sold through veterinarians. And the only other brand that, and by far the smallest, is us. And we're the only ones making a whole food diet. But we're also, you know, of the hundreds of brands that are available on the market, for example, we're the only small brand that's covered by insurance because the actuaries have to come in and do their due diligence and make sure you are everything you're supposed to be. And wow. How do you compare to, say, there's a lot of these, like, high-end... Yeah, people that direct competitors of ours that make a human-grade... Yeah, exactly. Like a farmer's dog or a My Ollie or a Nom Nom Now. Those are the ones that come yeah. to my mind. Oh, there's also a pet plate. For clarity, those brands all have come around in about the past 36 months. They were created in our image, which we're flattered by. One was actually created by a guy who worked at the private equity company that funds us. Wow. And so I think discovered, you know, I don't have a problem with that at all, by the way, but, you know, discovered, hey, wow, this looks like a really great business. I'll go do that. The fact of the matter is we have to have competitors. It can't just be us. It's not a real category for the only ones doing it. Yeah. 
We this don't. is, by the way, one of the most counterintuitive things that business people don't recognize is you don't want to not have competitors. You want competitors. You right. want to pick your p- competitors. And you'd much rather be in a battle, I would think, with high-quality people who are selling the story of quality food than to just be in a battle with kibble. That's yeah. You want your customer not even thinking about kibble. Right. Yeah. I mean, look, a big, you know, we sometimes call it big kibble. They are so massive compared to us. You know, we don't need to do battle against the other companies that, you know, I just mentioned so much as we all need to do battle against the machine that is kicking out, you know, metric tons of kibble. Right. They're also going to screw it up. Like if a company is engineered around making profit on the operations side by being better at making really cheap stuff really quickly and right. getting it everywhere. It's such a different mind frame to think about creating a short shelf life, high quality product that needs a, a really sustained value chain, quality control over a sustained value chain. I mean, you they can throw a lot of money at it, but everything everyone at Big Kibble is trained to do is literally the opposite of what you do. So right. I would predict they're going to screw it up so badly. Like I think they most of them know. I don't want this to sound the wrong way or disrespectful to any other companies, but there's a sometimes there's a lack of imagination, and so I can give you a, a very real story. You know, almost four years ago, I hired a CEO for the company. He's fantastic. And he worked for a company that we won't name, where he had come from watching a bunch of focus groups. And people were talking about and describing, like, we want real food, and we want, you know, whole food, and we're eating local, and we wanted to, like, and then he came to visit me, and he looked around at our kitchen and said, my God, this is exactly what people are asking for. Well, some months or a year later, whatever it was, that company that he was doing work for, they came out with their answer that had been derived, presumably, from the, you know, uh, research that he had been involved in. And what they did was they took, you know, freeze-dried peas and carrots and stuff and mixed it in with the kibble. (laughs) I mean, because that was their solution to something that was fresh, whole food. And so you made me think of it because you're talking about, like, they'd screw it up, and there's evidence of the lack of imagination. Right. And that's not something we talk often enough about on this podcast is— Because, again, we often talk about it like, oh, you have this nice little niche, which is great, and you can build a really nice life around it. You could even get kind of rich. You can make a few million bucks, and it's not just a kind of mom-and-pop lifestyle business. It's a real business. But but a thing I want to talk more about is how passion can actually go head-to-head with scale, with big, and how that works. And this is a great— example of that. Well, think about our deal with Petco. Like, here's a company that contacted us. We're tiny. They're massive. Their sales are about $4.5 billion a year. It's not a secret. And they really care about pets. You know, I didn't know that. When I first was contacted and we went to sit down and have a meeting, I thought, giant, you know, conglomerate that's heartless and, you know, and just wants to cash a check. But there was a lack of, or maybe not a lack of, but that what they were looking for was that passion. You know, how do we bring that into, you know, our stores? Yeah, and that's what throughout CPG, the consumer packaged goods industry, yeah. there's a passion crisis. I mean, I look at 
you know, what counts for cutting-edge innovation in candy is now Snickers has dark chocolate. Now right. Kit Kat has dark chocolate. Now it has white chocolate. I mean, that's not... Right. That's like, not reinventing anything. No. We, yeah. we have these machines. We're going to throw a slightly different ingredient through the machine. Yeah. Yeah, you're really... I mean, you're a perfect example of sort of a slogan I've come up with to think of the passion economy, that... It's the best of the 19th plus the best of the 20th equals the 21st century. That if you think about the 19th century and earlier, most— Yeah, they did what they—they did what they knew how to do. And it was local and deeply intimate and appropriate for the area. But there was no scale. So, like, if you—in the 19th century, you could think, boy, I bet dogs all over the world would love this food— that could be a nice thought, but there's no way— Nothing to do about nothing it. Nothing to do about it. Yeah. And then you have the 20th century where the central economic gravity is around scale, around around operations, around producing the same thing faster and faster, cheaper and cheaper, spreading it more and more. Of course, it's the kibble century. I mean, right. And if you had an idea like, hey, I want this really boutique product that— but I think it can scale— People say, oh, no, no, no. We... <laughs> why, why would we do that? Why yeah. would we do that? Yeah. Our uh, refrigerated trucks are filled with milk and ice yeah. cream, and yeah. we don't want to talk to you. Mm-hmm. And now you're able to take advantage of the scale that was developed in the 20th century, but to do a very 19th century type product, yeah. like straight from the field yep. into a kitchen, then into my fridge. Yep. So as someone who's created non-passion businesses and this passion business, what's different when you really, really care about the end user and the idea of the company? How is it different from the bike parts business or the ad business or the baby stroller business? Yeah, it's you always care about the customer and you want to gain more customers and you want them to be happy and you want to have good customer service and so on, because you want to be profitable. Uh, You want to run a good, clean organization. And if you're like me, you tend to sell them. So it's all got to be buttoned down. But there is a difference. There's no question. The thing that I love the most is when I'm in one of our 124 now stores or kitchens, and I come in contact with the dogs. I absolutely love the dogs. So, you know, there's that. There's that, I don't know, additional level of involvement and satisfaction and feeling like, you know, everybody wants to change the world. You know, it's a cliche, but I can honestly say we are changing the world if you're a dog. The Passion Economy is a three Uncanny Four production. It's hosted by me, Adam Davidson, and produced by Lena Richards. Our music is composed and performed by Casey Halford. Our sound engineer is Gene Montalvo. Our executive producer is Laura Mayer. If you want to learn more about the theories in this podcast, check out my book, aptly named The Passion Economy. 